This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is a special edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. Smells are a hotline to memory. The electricity's cut off. There's six months' worth of mail on the doormat. What's been happening here? Constantine, this place is not safe for you. Things are free in this house that should not be loose on Earth. You must not stay here. No, I'll stick around. I'm intrigued. Anyway, I was fond of Rachel once. She was, you know, the girl of me dreams for a while. Which is her room? I don't know. They've remodeled. Let us try this door. You just heard Taryn Egerton and James McAvoy in an excerpt from Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, which was scripted and directed by Dirk Maggs. If you love audio theater, then you know the work of Dirk Maggs. As a producer, director, and writer, his productions immerse listeners in the worlds that he creates. He's known for rich and varied sound effects, bringing the language of movie making to audio productions. Yet, however layered the sound effects or ringing the music that he commissions carefully, he's also a drummer after all, he always begins and ends with a focus on the words that are spoken. The text is never lost in his wall of sound, but rather heightened and illuminated. The industry has taken notice. In a career spanning 30 years, he's won many national and international awards for his groundbreaking work, including in the UK, Sony Awards and Talkie Awards, and in the US, Audiophile Golden Earphone Awards, Audio Awards, and a New York Festival's Gold Medal. Back in the day, Dirk first made a name for himself by turning DC comics like Batman and Superman into audio productions that sounded like movies. Douglas Adams heard them and chose Dirk to bring The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy back to radio. Dirk Maggs also has had a longtime collaboration with Neil Gaiman, going back to his producing and co-directing Neverwhere for the BBC. The partnership has flourished through several audio projects, including the long-awaited and recently released production of The Sandman, with a cast that includes James McAvoy, Michael Sheen, Taryn Egerton, and Kat Dennings, with Neil Gaiman narrating. The Sandman made its first appearance over 30 years ago and is a classic. It's a critically acclaimed and much-loved comic book series. 
its many fans are deeply invested in the world that Neil Gaiman created. And so when I spoke with Dirk Maggs, I asked him what he remembered about his first encounter with the Sandman. Sandman was a complete revelation to me because here was this guy who was writing the most deeply researched mythology, not just of mythology itself, but of DC Comics mythology. He somehow mixed the whole lot up. And as well as that, there was this, it was a story that felt almost random, but there was this driving character who was part of a new invented mythology, which was Morpheus, the Lord of Dreams, and the his siblings in The Endless, uh, Desire, Death, uh, Destiny, Destruction, and so on. And it just totally captivated me. And as luck would have it, um, you know, I was able to communicate at that time by email with Neil. And I said, look, I would love to offer this as an audio thing. Can I see if they'll buy it, if the BBC will buy it? And he said, I don't see why not if DC are happy about it because it's DC's property in the end. Well, that was the first time I tried to sell Sandman to the BBC, thinking it would be, you know, almost effortless for them to see how brilliant this was, given that they'd already bought from me productions of Batman and Superman and so on. Well, <laughs> I just hit a complete brick wall. I don't know what it was. I, I, maybe it was bad timing. Maybe I didn't explain it very well. But for the next 28 years, I tried to get, or Neil as a sort of sleeping partner, and I tried to get this project off the ground. Uh, but as Neil now says, it's probably just as well it took that long because we both know so much more about what we do than we did in those days. Maybe it's an idea whose time has come. So I guess that's probably the best way to look at it. Now, how closely did you and Neil Gaiman work together to create The Sandman? I've had a good working relationship now with Neil for some time. We hadn't met for years and years and years, but I'd carried on making my kind of audio movie production style from those early days with the with the DC Comics titles, which Douglas Adams had then heard. And Douglas was trying to find someone in the BBC who would be interested in bringing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy back to its home medium of audio, uh, because it started as a radio, two radio series, Hitchhikers. And he heard my work and asked me if I would do it. And that set me off on a wild goose chase for about 15 years of trying to do that and then narrowly managing it and then something happening like Douglas losing interest and then getting interested again. And then Douglas, out of the blue, just died, which was just horrible and tragic and ghastly. Um, but at the same time, it had the effect of sort of pulling together all the strings of Douglas's various friends and his various ideas and so on. And so Hitchhikers finally happened. We were able to make it in the mid-2000s. So I hadn't spoken to Neil for ages and ages, and then I was. we did a tour uh, of the Hitchhikers show with the original cast, a stage tour around the UK. Because Neil had known Douglas as well, Douglas had mentored both of us, it seemed appropriate to see if Neil would like to come aboard as the voice of the book for at least one or two performances. And Neil very sweetly said he would, and we ended up meeting for the first time physically 
in uh, July 2012 in uh, Edinburgh in Scotland. And we had a wonderful time. And just a, a week or two before we actually met, I got a letter from a, an email from a BBC producer called Heather Lama. And Heather said, um, I've managed to sell BBC Radio on the idea of doing Neverwhere as a radio play. And Neil Gaiman is asking whether you'd be interested in adapting it. And I thought, well, what a good fella he is. And I said, yes, I'd love to. I said, I'd absolutely love to. Can I co-direct it with you? Because I thought, if I'm going to be in for a penny, I might as well be in for a pound. And Heather, who's just the nicest person on the planet, said, yes, of course. And it turned out to be a sort of marriage made in heaven, a, you know, a platonic relationship of the best sort. Worked really, really well indeed. And so I walked into the read-through and... This is sort of a pinch me moment because sitting around the table were James McAvoy, Natalie Dormer, Sophie Ocanido, Benedict Cumberbatch, Bernard Cribbins, Andrew Sachs, David Harewood and Sir Christopher Lee and, and many, many others. They, uh, the creme de la creme of British acting were in that room and I suddenly realised, well, first of all, I thought Heather is a genius to get this cast together. But also I thought, this is really interesting. This guy who at one time I thought I was the only person who knew how good he was. And here are all these actors who've turned up because it's him. And in fact, I said to James, um, this is when I first worked with James McAvoy. And we broke, broke for coffee, you know, after reading a couple of uh, installments. And I said to him, um, I tried to be cooler than this sounds, but I said, what are you doing here? You could be in... Los Angeles earning telephone numbers and he just said ah but I love this stuff except he didn't say stuff oh laddie you can't stay there they'll move you on or take you in trust me I know <laughs> no 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 I'm not begging I just came out for there it's my leaving party in there you see got a present and everything oh that is a very white umbrella. Huh? What's it say on it? It's a map, I think. Oh, no, look, it's London Underground. It's nice. Oh, London, I've been there. Hey, give me your hand. Uh, I'll no. tell your fortune. No, no, I haven't got any chance. Hey, 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 hey. Oh, you have a long way to go. <laughs> yeah, I said London. Not just London, not the London I know. And from that, we carried on to make... The next production we did uh, was Good Omens, which was our audio version with uh, Peter Serafinowicz as uh, Crowley and Mark Heap as Aziraphale. A wonderful cast, uh, very, very funny. It worked very well, very pleased with that. And then we went on to do Stardust with uh, Eleanor Bron uh, narrating. And then we went on to do How the Marquis Got His Coat Back, which was the sequel to Neverwhere, a sort of novella. And the last thing I did, Heather moved on and I adapted but didn't co-direct uh, a Nancy Boys. So, um, you know, by the time we got to sort of the, the last two or three years, Neil and I were close. We'd had a wonderful working relationship. It was sort of like a triumvirate, me, Heather and Neil at the apex of the triangle uh, creating this stuff. And then December 2017, it's funny, I was looking at Twitter, you know, and Neil was tweeting, somebody asked Neil, they said, oh, when, when will we see Sandman? When will it happen or something? And he said, well, it's not really in my gift. It's DC Comics' property, so, you know, if they want to do something, they'll do something. 
I was looking at that and I was thinking, you know, smiling wryly to myself, thinking, yeah, well, I don't suppose that'll ever happen, and certainly not as an audio thing. And then I got an email a couple of days later from um, a guy called Sandy Resnick, who works at DC Comics, and he said, uh, Derek, I see, on, um, I see on Twitter Neil's talking about Sandman, and I thought, you know, it's just me talking, not DC, but I'm wondering whether there isn't something could be done here, given you've worked with him lately. And so I just sort of thought, well, you know, sometimes dreams come true. So I emailed Neil and I said, oh, DC are asking about uh, Sandman. Would you be interested in doing it? And Neil sent a two-word reply, which Neil is a pr pretty much a model of restraint and, and he's very economic with words, but he, he did go to two words and the second word was yeah. So, you know, that was kind of great because it was definitely me thinking, there's, there's only one answer I want to hear and that was exactly the answer I got. <laughs> And so we were underway. But then the question was, where do we do it? I'd got a very good relationship with Audible, thanks to Steve Carsey, the commissioning editor working out of Audible UK. And so I rang him and said, if this came to Audible, what would you say? And his answer was pretty much the same as Neil's, which was enthusiastic, if somewhat scatological. Well, let me ask you, how you approach a comic, what you do when you recreate a comic or a graphic novel as an audiobook? It's a really interesting area. My first encounter with adapting comic book material for audio was actually in 1988. The very first thing I did, this, the, the Trial of Superman, this docudrama for BBC Radio 4, which was really going out on a limb uh, because I, I put it in as a programme idea without really working out what to do. And... I quickly learned that there were a lot of things you can do in audio that comic books can't do and vice versa. And there's a wonderful sort of symbiotic relationship between the two. They can actually not only coexist, but they can sort of feed each other. But the real apex of this discovery for me was a couple of two or three years later when I did a Superman docudrama, I did a Batman docudrama, both of them dramatizing comic book stuff then i did the adventures of superman and then i did superman lives so by then i was getting pretty practiced at it but i didn't actually sit down and analyze how the process worked until about 1993 when um the bbc has uh well several networks now but radio one was the young people's music network and it had just been taken over by a new controller called matthew bannister very nice guy and Matthew was looking for ways to rejuvenate the, the network. And he, he wanted a daily drama. And he came to the light entertainment department where I was working. And we were all assembled in the boss's office. And Matthew said, look, I'm looking for a, a drama that really grabs people's attention and is, is contemporary and slick and relevant and this and that and the other thing. And I was thinking to myself, I don't think I've got anything I can offer this guy because I think what he wants is some real social conscience, gritty, down on the streets and all of that. And I'm, I'm not a suffering downtrodden kind of auteur if I am any kind of auteur. So I'm sitting at the back thinking, yeah, I'm just going to keep quiet and uh, it'll soon be time to go and get a sandwich for lunch. Anyway, went through everybody, everybody put in ideas and nothing, nothing came up. So he finally came to me and said, all right, Dirk, you're hiding in the corner. What have you got? And I said, how about Batman? And he said, sold. 
Okay. Okay, bluff number one called. So I'm thinking, holy smoke, I better get in touch with DC and find out whether they'd actually let me. But I thought, oh, a win. And then he immediately said, how about doing it in three-minute installments? And I thought, oh, blast. But I smiled and I said, yeah, great, because that's what you do, you know. And then you go out into the corridor and that's when you weep. But I... I thought, how am I going to do this? How Three minutes a day? And what they wanted to do, is quite a clever idea. He wanted to tell the story in three-minute episodes daily, and three minutes is about the same length as a pop song. So it was a nice idea. But there's a point to this story, Joe. There is a point. I'm getting to it. So three minutes a day. And then I'm th- thinking about this. I'm thinking, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Why am I worrying? This is comic books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Comic books are written in bite-sized pieces because if you, if you envisage your comic book, you've got the, the, the front page, which is big and brash and colourful and, and it grabs you, and you turn to the next page and you've got a splash panel, you've got another full page, a sort of all, a second cover, if you will, and then you get into the story and pretty much every comic book that's ever been written works on the principle that they want you to keep turning the pages to the very last page and then they make you want to buy the next comic book. So if you've got, say, six panels on a page, the first panel picks up where you left off, second, third, fourth and fifth develop that story and the sixth panel on that page has got the thing that makes you want to turn over and look at the next page. So translating this to writing in sound... It was pretty simple for me to figure out that what I needed to do was to start every episode. If we were doing any kind of backstory or catch-up, it would happen while we were going to the next location in the story. No one would stop and talk about stuff. This wasn't like one of the polite BBC radio dramas where they're rattling teacups and asking about the vicar's dog. This is something where they're actually working forwards all the time and in fact what I was doing was basically hitting the kind of beats that a film script would hit an action sort of movie you know good structure fast pacing not an ounce of fat on the writing so the idea was of hitting beats and at the same time I also knew this would be released on cassette and cd so there were 65 three-minute episodes so we're talking about three hours plus of product And so what I tried to do as well in every three or four episodes was run a longer little story through that. All the time I'm sticking to the comic books. You know, there are there are threads in the story and try and get a sort of little weave going on a bit like a tapestry that runs from from the beginning to the very end. So that you're not it's not like a sine wave of climaxes. If you're listening over a period of time, there's an ebb and flow of story within it. The beats aren't too obvious, I suppose, is what I mean. And that really was the point at which I realised that not only were the two media completely happy in bed together, but also that 
you could use the language of the language of cinema, the grammar of cinema, is one we are all familiar with these days, and I think the language of cinema is more accessible, especially to younger listeners these days, and the. Batman Nightfall project was where I had to write three-minute episodes a day, and that's where I really began to learn how to write something as if it were a film, and with all the sound effects and the music and the scale of a film, but which didn't need a camera in the room. That was the moment when I thought I can do anything. That wasn't meant in a sort of big-headed braggadocio way, but it was. A sort of opening of the eyes to the potential of this medium, and that was really what I've carried with me ever since, and tried to bring to everything that I've done: Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or Agatha Christie stories, or plays I've done, or whatever. But my heart's always been, all along, enthralled to the the medium of popular storytelling, because I thought. That if we could make a success of something like the Sandman, or a title which had as much popular success as that was, then we might bring a whole new audience into scripted audio storytelling. That was my real governing motivation, and so when finally. We got to the point that we could make Sandman for audio. I could see Neil's point about we probably weren't ready before. We kind of came to this at just the right point. I'm curious when you go into the studio, for example. Let's talk about Sandman specifically. Do you have a sense of how? The narration should sound to you. Are you hearing it already in your head? Do you know what you want from each actor? I guess that's a long-winded way of saying. Do I prepare? <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> no. I'm sure you do prepare, but how how much do you leave open for the actor? That's a good question, Joe. The challenge of making Sandman was I knew exactly what I wanted to do with it, but. I was also very aware that this is a much loved, much cherished piece of work, and one of the biggest issues with the Sandman is it's been in existence for over thirty years now. People know what they want to hear from it, and I realised quite early on that if I was going to be clever and try and reinvent the wheel, I would be in a "if it ain't broke, don't fix it" situation. But the thing about Sandman was. I don't think audio, as a medium, need feel inferior to any other medium because I believe that our medium works just like movies and TV do. The only difference is that the the stimulation bypasses the optic nerve. It doesn't go in through the front door. It sneaks in through the side doors, and then it creates the image on your. You know, cerebral cortex. You know, between your ears, is the single greatest imaging chip in the computer world, which is the human brain. And your brain will create visions from what you hear. Some people, there are conditions where people don't have this, but most people have this, which is really what we rely upon in the audio business to tell our stories. You visualize from what you hear. Okay, so let's bring it back to Sandman. 
So I was ready to go with an adaptation of Sandman, and I knew that, that this wouldn't be so much an audio dramatization. It would be an audiobook sort of riding on a dramatization because we would need to find a way to stick very close to the original. I felt that that was the, that was the, the, the plow to furrow because then Anil, as exec producer with me on this, would then we could then concentrate and make this as quintessentially Sandman as we could. Well, that's easier said than done. How did you go about making this happen? I immediately gave up any thought of updating it making it present day, introducing cell phones or, you know, the internet or all of this. It had to stay set in the late 80s, early 90s. It had to be something with Neil's authentic voice in it. And that was the real revelation because I said to Neil, the only way I can think of doing this is to see your original scripts, the scripts you wrote for the artists and uh, Todd Klein, who was doing the lettering, and the inkers and the colorists. Those will have the descriptions of what you wanted to see. And if I blend those descriptions with what you actually see in the comics, we will end up with something which will be as quintessentially Sandman as you can get. And then if somebody wants to pick the comic book up and look at it alongside, it'll be there'll be a fair degree of correlation. And so Neil dug out these from these ancient hard drives. And I think it started, I think the first one I got was episode three. I think one and two have gone in, you know, disappeared into the ether. And I was looking at it. And as soon as I opened this thing, I'm with Neil. I'm standing at his shoulder while he's writing this in 1987. He goes into what this episode's going to be about and the general feel of it. And then he starts describing the panels. And then something wonderful happens. This stuff I'm reading, these descriptions of what he's seeing in his mind's eye, it's poetry. It's like Dylan Thomas. And suddenly, I can see exactly what this needs to be. This needs to be Neil. He'd already asked if he could narrate. And I said, well, of course, of course, my dear. But when I saw this, I thought, oh, this is it. This is the mother load. And that was one of the best parts of the job for me. He's a wonderful narrator. He has hmm. just such a beautiful voice and intonation. And he, he can lead you into some dark places, as he does in the book, without being threatening. Yes. Neil has a very particular way of reading. If you, you hear one of Neil's books read by the author, he has a distinct style. He has a rhythm and he has a way of, of massaging a sentence which keeps you interested to the very end. And Neil reading this stuff and with the action playing underneath with the wonderful cast we had and with, you know, the uh, I've brought every inch of sound designing experience I've had over the last 40 years into the sound design. And then James Hannigan's music, which adds a whole new layer of magic to the thing. And when it's all mixed together, you're transported and you're in this guy's head. Good morning. You, Lord Lazor. I greet you humbly. John Johns, the Justice League of America's Martian Manhunter, drops to his knees upon sight of the Lord of Dreams, whose name and appearance change according to the beholder. To John, Morpheus appears as the great fiery Martian deity, Lord Lazorl, because any possible name for any dream god will attach itself to dream. But in truth, none of them, not even Morpheus, are his names. Dream is not a name. 
it is a function. None of the endless truly have names. And protect us in dreams and from the flame of your wrath. And it was so wonderful about 10 p.m. one night, three or four months ago, while I was doing post-production, I emailed Neil and I said, do you know how good you were when you wrote this stuff? And uh, I didn't expect an answer, but almost immediately came back, Neil saying, yes, but I, I don't remember doing it. I'm not the person who wrote this. He's a different person to me. And I thought, what an interesting answer, because... This young man who's, well, I don't know how, Neil was, wasn't 30 when he started Sandman. And he was a library brat, you know. He brought himself up just devouring books. And all of it is in the Sandman. He's got the, the poetry. He's got the knowledge. He's got all this eclectic stuff that's just gathered in his brain. It's just falling out on the page. And it's, it's magical. It's absolutely magical. It, it was magical to do it. I mean, some jobs, you know, in the end, it's a job of work and some jobs are hard work. And you think, gosh, I really could have picked a less onerous duty here. But this was a joy from start to finish. Listening to Neil Gaiman is one of the joys of my life. And then having James McAvoy right there with him, it was extraordinary. How did you work together with James McAvoy to create that oral portrait of Morpheus? We were in an interesting situation with James because we were supposed to record Morpheus round about oh, late February, early March, before the, lo the COVID and lockdown really, really hit. And... James was always in our thoughts as Morpheus. And the thing about Morpheus, and this is really the thing, uh, we've had him around for 30 years. People have a very clear idea of what the Morpheus in their head sounds like. And to ask any actor to do it is a, a mean thing. Um, in fact, our first conversation, James and I had a couple of Skype calls and, and he said, no pressure, 30 years of expectation, no pressure to find this guy. And we knew we'd have to record him in a sort of his own place in his house in London. So Marielle, who's the um, casting supervisor, rented this sort of build-your-own-vocal-booth gadget, sent it to James. So James spent a day and a half with a screwdriver putting up his own studio. It's a bit like the days when they used to make a, the, the condemned man build his own scaffolding, you know. <laughs> but we'd had discussions about how Morpheus should sound, and I remember I would sort of write notes down and shoot them to Neil. We had two discussions and James came up with the idea that Morpheus would be angry. He would be lost and confused and scared, but anger would carry him through because he's a captive at the beginning of our story. And at the end of the first double episode, he, he, he escapes. And then he has to find the instruments of power, the, the helmet, the ruby, and the pouch of sand that make him Lord of Dreams. And so the next six episodes deal with his journey to find these things. And he has to go to hell where he meets Lucifer and he has to play a game of wits with a demon who has his hat, stuff like this. And it's working on so many levels. And I don't like to tell actors what to do at the start. I like to find what they want to do with them. That sounds incredibly pretentious. But as soon as you start laying rules down, you've stopped that person playing. And an audio studio is the greatest 
playground you can have. The imagination can take you to wherever you want to go. So quite often on these jobs, I will workshop stuff with actors and we will find our way through it. And really with James, we did, we kind of agreed a basic recipe for Morpheus, which is that he can be a bit sulky and he can be a bit petulant and he can be at times a real pain in the rear. But at times he can do remarkably philanthropic and sympathetic things. He is a character with flaws and virtues. But the one thing he isn't, he never shouts. We discussed accent because, of course, James is Scottish. He's as Scottish as you can get. He's from Glasgow. And Neil had said to me he thought a classical actor, British accent, was probably what he wanted to do. And we discussed it. And in the end, that's what James decided he'd go with. But the, the question was open because I wanted him to have that ability to go where he felt comfortable with it. So in the end, we came up with a sort of recipe of someone who never raises their voice. They speak in measured tones. If there's a poetry in the lines, he was going to try and find it because there is poetry in the lines, sometimes consciously. Many thousands of years ago, I heard a song in a dream, a mortal song that celebrated her gift and still remember it. Death is before me today, like the recovery of a sick man, like going forth into a garden after sickness. Death is before me today, like the odor of myrrh, like sitting under a sail in a good wind. Death is before me today, like the course of a stream like the return of a man from the war galley to his house. Death is before me today, like the home that a man longs to see after years spent as a captive. Morpheus seldom laughs except very occasionally, and most of the time is quite brooding. And the thing about James as well is he's a ball of energy. So on previous things, when I've actually worked with him in a studio and we've been next to each other, he'll come up and sort of punch me in the arm and say, come on, what's next? Come on, do it. Come on, ready. Come on. So I'm used to having this sort of fizzing ball of energy in the room, which is fantastic because Morpheus is quite passive a lot of the time. He kind of is a presence. And when we don't have pictures to convey that presence. It's good to have James with this just aura he gives off that even a microphone could pick up, that he's there and he's on it and he's on the balls of his feet and he's ready to go. But the other thing that happened on Finding Character was that I'd actually recorded the whole thing at the end of last year at the stu at Audible Studios in London with a, a supporting cast who really, you know, the, the term supporting is not really grand enough to cover how brilliant these people are and it really has got the top voice talent in london people like kerry shale who just you know apart from being a brilliant audiobook narrator in his own right i've worked with kerry for 30 years on everything and um, he's a chameleon our supporting cast was full of people like that as well and also we had people like joanna lumley we had um, Matthew Horne playing Hob Gadling. We had Michael Sheen playing Lucifer because Michael came in on an ensemble day and worked with the rest of the group. And if I've got a group of actors in the studio, and I much prefer working this way, I hate working individually if it's a group scene because actors give 
energy to each other. And so we had this amazing, we had Ray Porter, who's, who's actually, who's a well-respected audiobook reader, well-known to audiophile listeners. Ray's actually a resident of Los Angeles. Ray flew himself over on his own dime to be in this. I'm sitting there humbled by the talent in the room. Sorry, let me just interrupt for one second. Please. So you were able to bring a lot of the actors together, supporting actors. I'm using inverted commas here. You were able to bring these actors together to record at the same time. Yes. My one absolute rule is, if it's at all possible, work the cast ensemble. If you have scenes with numerous characters in, have those actors in the room at the same time. Right. I was going to ask you about that because you've spoken so eloquently about that in the past. And I wondered how it worked for this book. Well, it worked very well. In fact, this is the thing. It was a real privilege to be in the room with these actors working on this stuff. We had someone reading in Morpheus's parts because James was busy. We had people reading in for various other actors who went like a cat who plays death because she was busy. Uh, she couldn't be there. So I basically had the whole thing performed by the ensemble without the lead actors, but with those parts read in, acted in really well, which meant that we got all the dramatic beat points nailed on those reads before James or Kat or whoever came in to do the lead parts were involved. And what that gave us was not only a sort of route map of the dramatic structure and the and the story points that needed bringing out, it was also wonderful to witness and a privilege to watch and listen to the cast actually perform something in one go. And it was an absolutely magical experience because then I could hear Neil's story that originally only existed in comic book form coming to life as an ensemble acted piece with all the sense and the emotion and the depth and the tragedy intact. I'd like to focus on voice actors specifically. We know that there are fabulous actors who just are not exactly sterling as voice actors. They need their body in some way. It just doesn't work. But man, when there's a great actor who knows how to use a microphone, and especially now, it's so important, I think, because we're listening with earbuds, typically. I mean, they're literally in our head. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I've worked with many actors, obviously, over the last 30 years, and voice actors have a particular set of skills. But the first skill they absolutely have to have is they're an actor. They can play a part in any medium. That's the, the one thing. But voice actors, having learned to be an actor in the first place, what they also need to do is they need a good ear. They need to be able to hear how a voice alone can convey emotion, can convey nuance, can speak a long sentence with subordinate clauses and get to the end and still have made sense of all of it. Anyone who works with a Douglas Adams script will know what I mean by that. I do remember I was working with William Franklin, who was our voice of the book, uh, Paul Peter Jones having died. Bill Franklin's work his way through this page. It is one sentence, one whole page. And it's typical Douglas. It, it goes off into all directions and they're all subordinate clauses, semicolons everywhere, hyphens, dashes, commas, no full stops, no periods anywhere, just right to the end. 
and he made it and he just came out of it phew bloody hell what is this man on it was very funny but one of the fun parts of doing this job was to be able to get in actors like Ray Porter and Simon Vance. Simon plays Lucian, who's the Morpheus's sort of butler valet, Al- Alfred to to Morpheus's Batman, if you will. One of the beauty of the beauties of it was these guys could show what they'd got, you know, show all the other acting chops they'd got, and it was really fun to get them into the ensemble situation to create to see them and the energy they were getting off other people, which normally they have to summon for themselves, was, was a wonderful thing. But voice actors are a breed apart, you're quite right. You are very good at striking a balance among respecting the text, respecting the actors, and also creating a deeply textured soundscape. Can you talk just a little bit about... The sound that you bring, you're known for bringing, and again, inverted commas, a movie sound to audio plays, which I'm not sure what that means, except that it's just layered. Yeah, I think it's layered. And I think the audio movie, Super K, which I use, is horribly clunky, but audiobook doesn't cover it and audio theatre doesn't cover it because it does kind of use the language and the technology of cinema to tell the story. So over the years... I think I've made every mistake possible. But there are still some I've yet to discover, and I know I'll make them because technically I'm still perfectly capable of tripping over my own neck. It gets harder and harder to know which audience you're making material for. And when I was working for the BBC, I knew people were listening on radios and probably 50%, 60% in their cars, and about 40% were listening at home. When we, in the mid-90s, were actually making this stuff in Dolby Surround, we would push it a little bit more and push the levels a bit more, and it was quite a punchy listen. And if you hear some of the mid-90s stuff I was doing, it's really kind of hard work. Um, You know, it can be loud and brash and banging at you. At the same time, kids love it. Kids absolutely adored it. But as time goes by, you learn to preserve what's best about the sound and somehow suggest everything else. And I've got to say, I'm a nightmare to work with in terms of Audible, for example, uh, Steve, the commissioning editor and, and the guys who are doing all the quality checks. I think I mixed Sandman in Toto about eight times before I was happy with the mix. And even when I was happy with the mix, I've mixed it again just for the heck of it, because I want everything to be louder than everything else except if you're listening somewhere where you really need to hear the words and then they've got to be loudest but at the same time if you're listening on earbuds or headphones I want the thing to envelop you and so I play with all sorts of technical toys to try and realize that effect and make it feel like there's this movie playing around you and you're but you're also in that world with it but at the same time I need to make sure that you hear every flipping word. That is paramount. Ugh, there's something on the walls here, something wet. And I can see the clouds, and they look kind of solid, and and the ground below them, and that that looks really solid, and it's a really long way to fall, and I'm falling. How did I get here? Memory fills in. The plane on fire. I jumped. 
I was the pilot. No, a uh, passenger then. I don't want to die. I don't want to fall. I tell myself it's not the fall. Falling doesn't hurt. It's when you stop. Constantine! <gasps> John. Oh. You're here. So real. You were there too. A dream. It was only a dream. It is never only a dream, John Constantine. Here less than some other places. So... I finally got to the point where I felt, yes, I've got the words really clear, but I'm not hearing Jim Hannigan's music and Jim Hannigan's music needs to be heard. So I'm pulling up the music and then in all of this balancing act that all of us who work in audio are so aware of one does. But in the end, in the beginning is the word and that's what we must preserve. Well, you're a drummer in a rock band and I can't (laughs) help but wonder if, that's a sensibility that you can bring to audio productions. I mean, you have to have a sense of rhythm. You have to know when to apply that flourish and you have to know when to lay back. Actually, I do think that the drumming has helped because I think there is a thing about timing. And there's also, it's beats in a story. It's big sound effects that happen. It's moments where you need a percussive beat. And if you are aware it's needed, you know to drop it in. I hear people new to the medium starting to work and I can hear where they're kind of not quite sure where to to nail it to the wall to make sure the thing holds up. And that's that's the same sort of percussive instinct that I think good good audio storytelling should have. A good narrator, just a single voice narrator, you know, is a magical thing. If you've got someone like Simon or Ray or Liz Nolden or or Julia Whelan or or Neil, for crying out loud, someone who really knows where the rhythms are, they lead you on this sort of, there's a sort of rhythmic swell. It's like I can see a conductor in front of an orchestra when they're just moving their hands very gently. And that's sort of what's happening to you. You're being brought along on this dance by, by this person. It is very much about rhythms. I mean, we're sort of suckers for rhythm, human, aren't we, really? We kind of, you know, if there's a beat going, we start tapping something and so on. We start moving our bodies. And I think the imagination works on a sort of rhythmic basis, too. I know we're going to wrap this up very soon, but so many of the audio plays you produce require world building on your part. They're not worlds we're familiar with. You have to create them for us. Is that part of why you might prefer to work in in fantasy and science fiction so you can do that? I love the world building aspect of almost anything I do. If I was doing, for example, Agatha Christie's story, The Gates of Baghdad, it's fun to kind of imagine, you know, the first thing you see is a big sandstone gate surrounded by sand. All the cliches come up. And then you think, okay, so how do I suggest that just in sound? What can I hear? Okay, well, there's going to be wind. There's going to be a distant. If we're outside the gate, there's presumably inside. It's busy Baghdad in the 1920s. So there'll be the odd motor vehicle. There'll be the odd camel. There might be a horse or two. There's going to be goats. I feel there are goats in this. I'm immediately thinking, this is what I'm seeing. What does it sound like? And there's a real joy you then amass, you know, okay, you know, you look up desert wind, you, know, you end up with 50 different desert, desert winds. And the one thing I can't stand is having too many sound effects when two or three will do better if one will do. So I, you know, sit through it all, sit through the sand, if you will. It's a flavor. That's a flavor. And, or I'm doing Batman. And I've got to create Gotham City. 
And I'm thinking, what's Gotham City like? And I had to do a scene in Gotham City and the scene in Metropolis back to back in one of the DC things. And I was thinking, now, ah, there's a challenge. What's the difference between Gotham and Metropolis? And I'm thinking, sirens. There's a lot more sirens going off in Gotham. Metropolis has got more birdsong. There are parks and green areas in Metropolis. There ain't no parks in Gotham. There's only crime. You know, so you, you begin to work into that world and think, well, how can I quickly suggest to an audience that this is what it is? And so it's a thrill. You, building worlds is, is wonderful. And it's like being a writer, like being Neil. What's just the right word to suggest tristesse with a hint of longing? It's the same thing. I'm thinking, what's the right word? What's the right way of su- suggesting cicadas with just a hint of coyote? You know, that's kind of, it doesn't sound appealing, but it's appealing to me. <laughs> I do want to thank you, Dirk, very, very much. And I do love The Sandman. I thought it was wonderful. And listening to Good Omens, hmm. that has such charm to it. And I know comedy is hard, but the older I get, I swear I think charm is harder. And it's in the writing, certainly, but being able to direct it and act it is something else again. And I thought that was so successful. Well, all my best directing happens when I shut up and let the actors do the work, you know, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is a good place to leave it. Dirk, thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. That's producer, director, and writer Dirk Maggs. You can find The Sandman exclusively at audible.com. This has been an extended edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. Follow us on Twitter at Audiophile Mag. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.